Someone fatally stabbed Stacy Stanton inside her apartment on February 3rd. This was violent, it was brutal. On February 3rd, 1990, someone brutally murdered 28-year-old Stacy Stanton inside of her second-story apartment in North Carolina, then cleaned up and disappeared. Residents of Maniel have lived in fear. For 30 years, Stanton's killer has had one face and one name. North Carolina investigators and Manio police believe that someone is Clifton Spencer. But is prejudice. They absolutely had tunnel vision that it was the black man who killed the white woman. Keeping an innocent man convicted. They even know now some of them old skogies or them old good old boys. They know this man didn't do that. And covering up more than one crime. I feel bad for that guy. I just really seriously don't think he did that. This is Counterclock, the investigation into the murder of Stacey Stanton. I'm your host, Delia D'Ambra. On the morning of September 11, 1991, a woman unlocking the doors of the Dare County Clerk of Courts building in downtown Manio, which also housed the county's superior court, arrived to find someone had broken into the building overnight. The burglar busted in through a side window and trampled around the inside of the offices. They'd also left a gaping hole in the wall of a supply closet. On the other side of that wall was the cashier's room for the office of the clerk and an evidence storage room for the Dare County Sheriff's Office. Police officers from the town of Manio quickly arrived on scene and began processing the area. And right away they noticed shoe prints on the ground outside of the broken window, as well as inside of the building, on the walls and on the floor. Now, these marks on the walls looked like someone had kicked in the sheetrock of the wall in the supply closet. But the strangest thing about the entire crime was that it appeared nothing was missing from the judicial building. The officers were able to lift several fingerprints from some of the damaged surfaces, but after processing them, no one was arrested. The mysterious break-in at the courthouse remained unsolved for two years. In the summer of 1993, two years later, the town yet again found itself at the mercy of a serial burglar. In May and June, a crook had pillaged a dozen local businesses. The perpetrator ransacked a barber shop next to the Green Dolphin Pub, stole a small amount of cash from a realty office and a marina, and even broke into the Dare County Health Department building. That break-in was the most destructive yet. The burglar turned over and tore up cabinets and destroyed more than a thousand vials of medications and vaccines, stuff for diseases like hepatitis, rabies, and typhoid fever. The suspect had entered the health department by using a tool to crack open the building's back door. In total, the suspect had caused more than $17,000 in damage, but they weren't done yet. 
The last and final break-in in the rash of crimes was in June 1993. It was another heist at the Dare County Courthouse. Yeah, the exact same building that was burglarized in 1991. The man that Manio police brought in to help solve the string of burglaries was a brand new State Bureau of Investigation agent named Donnie Varnell. If you've listened to season one, you probably recognize Donnie's name. He's a major crimes detective for the Dare County Sheriff's Office now and was assigned to the Denise Johnson homicide in 1997. But back in the early 90s, Donnie was the resident SBI special agent on the Outer Banks, and he was fresh out of the academy. Donnie and I know each other well, so when I saw his name listed on an old police report for this June 1993 courthouse break-in, I had to give him a call. Donnie remembers working on this case and says there were unique elements to how the thief made entry to the courthouse. It looked like a B&E attempt to me. They had used some sort of a cutting device, which we were pretty sure was some sort of like a circular saw to try to cut through the door. And in all honesty, I think they had the, the blade set too shallow so it wasn't going through the door all the way. And then they try to, I think they actually try to cut through the wall beside the door. And fortunately didn't hit any of the electrical wiring. Someone had gone through the ceiling and tried to get into what was basically an evidence closet or an evidence room. According to police reports from 1993, a section of the roof had been torn off and there was a large hole where you could see several ceiling tiles had been broken through. Based on the evidence and the materials scattered on the floor that Donnie was looking at, the suspect had crashed in from the outside and taken a light out on their way down. Donnie says he got to work right away processing this scene. And just like Manio police had been able to do in 1991, Donnie lifted fingerprints and footprints from the damaged surfaces. I mean, I know we did fingerprints. We looked for tool marks, foot impressions, or shoe impressions outside, that kind of thing. Donnie first noticed that there were visible shoe prints on the wall and the door to the evidence vault. It was clear that someone had tried to kick in the wall after making the saw cuts, but they'd failed to get through to the other side. He also found the same kind of saw and shoe marks in a storage closet adjacent to the evidence vault room. But once again, it appeared the burglar's attempt to get into that room had failed. Donnie found footprints on the carpet leading to a side door that had been left open, so that was where he believed the burglar had exited from after being unable to get into the evidence room. Looking around the office space as a whole, it was clear the suspect had rifled through some desk drawers, but surprisingly hadn't taken anything. This break-in didn't leave Donnie scratching his head like the local officers had in 91. Donnie and a deputy from the sheriff's office felt they were dealing with a suspect who was from Manio, possibly a career criminal who was known to law enforcement. They felt sure the burglar in this 1993 break-in was the same person who'd struck just two years earlier. And thanks to ample evidence they'd left behind. It's just some vague recollection, but I, I thought maybe somebody followed a blood trail from a attempted B&E at, a, at like a business closer to the Baptist Church, not exactly downtown Manio proper, but it seems like someone cut themselves trying to go in a window and they followed up some blood drops back to another residence. 
Donnie's investigation led him to the doorstep of a man all too well known in the town, Mike Brandon. After a few days of investigating the second break-in at the Dare County Courthouse, Donnie Varnell began to suspect Mike Brandon was behind all of the burglaries that had been happening in Manio. I think because he had a history. So how it got to uh, that particular individual, I think he was actually involved in some additional breaking and enterings. In mid-June of 93, Donnie and Manio PD tracked Mike to a house in Nags Head. The house was Patty Rowe's mother's home, and when they called the phone number for the landline, Mike picked up. According to police reports, Mike said he was unable to come and speak with investigators because he was busy babysitting his son. You see, by 1993, Mike and Patty had gotten married, and their son, Mike Jr., was a toddler. Mike said that the night before, Patty and her mother had given him a ride from Manio to Nagshead, and he'd been there ever since. He told Donnie and the officers that he and Patty lived on Devon Street near downtown Manio, but he was unable to come back there at the moment because Patty had their car and she was at the funeral home in Manio making arrangements for her grandfather's funeral. The investigators thanked Mike for the information and stressed that they wanted to talk to him in person as soon as possible. They then go over to verify his story with Patty at the funeral home. When they get there, Patty tells the officers that she didn't pick Mike up in Manio the night before. She says Mike was dropped off early that morning by a friend. The police explain to her what they're investigating and ask if they can go inside her and Mike's home on Devon Street. They want to search the house for evidence. Patty agrees, and she tells the police that there's no telling what they might find because she hasn't been home in two days. After getting Patty's permission, the investigators go over to the house and search it, but they don't find any kind of evidence related to the burglaries. No shoes that matched the shoe prints collected at the courthouse. Nothing. Right around this time, a deputy helping work the case gets a hold of the man that Patty claimed dropped Mike off in Nags Head at her mother's house early that morning. This man's name is Jerry, and Jerry tells police that Mike called him to get a ride to Nags Head around 11 p.m. the previous night. Jerry said he picked Mike up in Manio, but before heading over to the beach, Mike said he wanted to make a stop. Mike told Jerry that this stop was so he could pick up a pair of shoes at his boss's house. Mike tells Jerry that the shoes he has are mismatched, and he needed to get the right ones from his boss and return the mismatched pair. Jerry tells police that Mike had the shoes in a cloth bag that looked like a pillowcase, and also inside the bag was a small circular saw. Jerry says in addition to the saw in the shoes, he also observed Mike carrying some blankets and sheets out of his house in Manio and transported those items to his mother-in-law's in Nags Head. With Jerry's statements in hand, Donnie is able to get a judge to sign off on a search warrant to check out the house Mike is staying at in Nags Head. Law enforcement executes the search at night. It's unclear, though, from this police report whether Mike was at the home when the SBI did the search. There's no mention of investigators arresting Mike during the raid. The only thing clearly spelled out in the report's narrative is that police successfully seized a pair of Mike's tennis shoes and a pillowcase they believed he carried the circular saw in. 
They compare the tennis shoes to the prints collected from the courthouse and run Mike's fingerprints against the ones lifted from the damaged surfaces. But the police report I have doesn't say if there was a match. But that wouldn't really matter in the end. It's hard to know if at this point Mike felt the investigation closing in on him or what, but five days after the authorities search his mother-in-law's house, Mike calls the police and offers to turn himself in. He tells Donnie that he's at a motel in Nags Head and he's willing to confess to all of the break-ins that had been happening in Manio, including the 1991 and 1993 courthouse break-ins. Donnie says when they went to pick Mike up, he didn't resist. I remember Brandon just being pretty docile with us, but I had very little contact with him, actually. In total, according to court documents, Mike faced 21 felony burglary charges for the crimes. And in April 1994, he pleaded guilty to all of them. Law enforcement and Mike's defense attorney's explanation as to why he tried not once, but twice to break into the evidence vault of the sheriff's office was surprisingly simple. I think the assumption was really simply that he thought there were drugs being stored in that uh, location. That was the only thing I remember being said, which was probably pretty accurate because that's where courtroom evidence was normally stored, if I remember correctly. Because Donnie didn't work Stacy's homicide in 1990, he wouldn't comment or speculate if maybe, just maybe, Mike wasn't after drugs when he broke into the courthouse those two times. He wouldn't tell me if he thought it was possible Mike was after something else, perhaps evidence in Stacy's case, evidence that Mike may have thought existed and didn't point to Clifton Spencer as being Stacy's murderer. And if you look closely at the timeline, something feels off. Clifton Spencer was sentenced to life in prison in January of 1991. And just a few months before that, in September of 1990, Mike Brandon and Patty Rowe got married. Their son, Mike Jr., had just been born. Then, a year later, in September of 1991, Mike is breaking into the Dare County Courthouse looking for what Donnie Varnell assumes is drugs. I mean, was there really no other way or any person Mike could get drugs from, aside from breaking into a government building? Unless he was after a large stash that could last him a while, or he had some knowledge beforehand that a good amount of drugs were even being stored in the evidence vault. I can't help but believe that perhaps Mike was after something else, not drugs at all. Something that if it was found out could disrupt Mike's new life with his new wife and baby. Remember, the first break-in at the courthouse happened eight months after Clifton is shipped off to prison. During that time, there were a lot of community members who thought Clifton didn't kill Stacy, that maybe someone else was responsible for the murder. Several people I've interviewed for this show even make pointed comments about Mike in particular. The fact is, Mike wasn't successful in his burglary of the courthouse in 1991. So whatever he was after, he tried again to get it in 1993. It's law enforcement's conclusion that he was after drugs both of those times, but I'm not sure I can buy that. See, here's the thing. You have to remember the timing of everything that was happening in 1993. So let's back out here for a moment. 
In April of 93, Clifton had his motion for appropriate relief hearing in front of Judge Gary Trawick. In that hearing, Eddie Barnes was going to attempt to present as much evidence and facts that didn't point to Clifton being Stacy's killer. The MAR hearing and Eddie's public expression that Clifton deserved a new trial was all over the local newspapers. Anyone in town would have known that this hearing was a big deal. If Clifton was granted a new trial, that meant a lot more investigation would have been done and evidence would have likely been re-examined in the murder case, evidence that was possibly being stored in the courthouse evidence room. Eddie was arguing for Clifton to have a new trial as soon as possible, which would have happened at some point probably in the summer or fall of 1993. What's interesting to me is that Gary Trawick didn't finalize his ruling denying Eddie and Clifton's request until October 31st, 1993, which means during the months of May, June, July, August, and September, there was still the possibility, at least in the public's mind, that Clifton could get a new trial and more evidence in Stacy's case would come to light about the murder. It just so happens that during that exact period of time is when Mike attempts to break into the evidence vault for a second time. Now, to me, that is either the most unbelievable coincidence or it's a sign that Mike may have been getting nervous, very nervous. After Mike's arrest in 1993, word spread around town that he had targeted the evidence vault. And people like David Newman, someone who was at the Green Dolphin pub the night before Stacy was killed, started wondering the same thing I am. I thought it was about drugs. You know, maybe he was stealing drugs. And then later, that's when I thought about it being about evidence. So I'm like... Did he break in there and steal the evidence? But still, no matter how suspicious Mike's break-ins at the courthouse were, no one investigated a connection between his possible motive and Stacy's murder. Law enforcement was just glad to have Mike caught, and the terms of his plea deal ensured that he was going to prison for many years. However, that didn't exactly happen. But I'll go more into that in our next episode. The further I dug into Mike's crimes and his history of burglaries, I also saw a pattern forming in Patty's life, too. As I've already told you, she was no angel. She had a history in the mid-1990s of assaulting women on the Outer Banks. She also had been arrested for drunk driving, threatening people, and becoming violent with police officers. A lot of the time when police were dealing with her and Mike, it was for domestic issues. In addition to the couple's friends from the 90s, I wanted to make sure I spoke with other people who had looked into Mike and Patty over the years. Maybe they'd found something I wasn't seeing. I contacted a former North Carolina prisoner legal services attorney named Letitia Eccles. Letitia represented Clifton from 1994 to 1998, and she'd taken several trips to the Outer Banks to investigate all of the circumstances and characters tied to Stacy and the murder. This included digging up information about Mike and Patty. Letitia's starting point was the Green Dolphin Pub. Everybody who was there, when I walked in, it was like, who's that? What does she want? And so it's really hard to know exactly where to start when you don't know the motives of all the players involved. Once she was able to get a few people to talk with her, she learned about Patty's background pretty quickly. 
Patty would fight at, at the drop of a hat, from what I could gather. I mean, it wasn't just women. She was willing to, to beat Brandon's chest, you know, to fuss at him. You're supposed to be with me. You need to, you know, you should be home with me, that kind of stuff. Letitia says her main goal in Manio was to speak with people who could provide information or proof that Clifton was wrongfully convicted. The entity she worked for, NCPLS, is a nonprofit law firm that takes on incarcerated inmates' cases to try and correct unlawful sentences. Letitia says every way she turned in Dare County, she was met with closed doors and closed lips. Did you feel like people on the island and in Dare County didn't want to talk to you at all? Some people did. They were just like, oh, do you know about this? Do you know about that? You know? But then when I asked them questions, they didn't want to talk anymore. That's probably one of the hardest cases that I had because it was, you knew that the truth is in there, but it's hard to pull it out. Everything is, is there somewhere. But the question is, how do you really get to it? Letitia worked tirelessly for years to answer that question and to get people in Manio to talk to her. But in the end, few locals ever trusted her enough to put their reputations on the line. Another blow to her investigation was that she had little to work with when it came to the SBI files she'd been given. According to Letitia, the entire volume wasn't provided to her. But despite these challenges, Letitia says the information she uncovered and was able to review only reinforced her belief that the initial investigation into Stacy's murder was botched. And the courts seemed bound and determined to convict Clifton. The SBI's involvement, it was not on the up and up. It just seems like a whole lot of shady stuff going on for a town that small. Letitia says she always felt like there was more to Patty and Mike, but she couldn't get it out of people. After I interviewed Letitia, it dawned on me. A small detail in the police report from 1993, when Mike was being investigated for the second courthouse burglary. In that report, Mike and Patty had both said they lived in a house together on Devon Street. Their house in 1993 was either the same one Joni Newman had lived in in 1990, or it was the one right next door. The homes were two small cottages on the corner of US 64 and Devon Street. Property records show that in 1990, the cottages were rentals and they stayed that way for years. I asked Joni and her brother if they ever remember Mike and Patty moving into one of those homes. Their answers threw a curveball my direction that I never saw coming. When I asked Joni Newman and her brother David to verify if they ever knew Mike or Patty to live in one of the cottages on Devon Street in Manio, their responses opened a whole new can of worms. They said yes, Mike and Patty did live in one of the houses in the early 90s, but there was something more important I needed to know. Joni moved out of her house, that little house on Devon Street. Well, when she moved away, somebody else bought it and they started redoing the house. Well, they found a knife underneath the house. What kind? A black-handled hand, black knife, and that's what Mike always carried, was a black-handled knife. I mean, I remember hearing 
that they had found the box cutter, whatever happened with that, I have no clue. But did you hear that they found it under the house you used to live in? Yes. What did you think about that? That was weird. That was really scary. Why? Like, oh my, I just, why would a box cutter be up under there? I can't find a single shred of documentation from any law enforcement agency that a folding knife or a box cutter type knife was found underneath one of the Devon Street cottages. There is no report that I can find that states it was ever investigated, and the cottages were torn down and rebuilt so there's nothing left of the original structures. Letitia told me that this hidden knife information isn't something she knew about. Eddie Barnes has told me the knife being found under the house is something he learned about later on, but at that point, he'd become a judge and there was nothing he could do with the information. If a knife was found hidden beneath one of those two cottages, that is extremely coincidental. Like almost insane that Mike and Patty ended up living in or possibly next to the spot. How could the police have no record of investigating this? I mean, if it's true, that means a box cutter knife, a potential murder weapon, was hidden for several years, just 200 yards from Stacy Stanton's front door. It could have been a huge lead for Clifton's attorneys, and it would have definitely been worth comparing to other evidence in Stacy's case. But by the mid-90s, law enforcement and the district attorney had no real interest in looking at Stacy's murder anymore. They already had their man in prison, Clifton. There would have been no motivation to dredge up another theory or make a case that there was potential new evidence in play. And because Clifton's attorneys at the time didn't know about the knife discovery, they couldn't introduce it as potential new evidence in a post-conviction hearing. As of this recording, I still cannot find any information about what happened to the knife or who actually found it. If you're listening to this show and you remember this detail, please contact me. My email is counterclock at audiochuck.com, and it's on our website, counterclockpodcast.com. One thing I know for sure is that despite there being no police report about this knife's discovery, I have two other witnesses, in addition to Joni and David Newman, who didn't want to be recorded for the podcast, but who verify that they heard a box cutter was found under one of the Devon Street cottages. This information about the knife and everything I'd learned about Patty and Mike up until this point just makes my head spin. I have so many questions. Why weren't Mike and Patty properly investigated or even looked at in a fraction of the way Clifton was? I mean, they both had criminal pasts, which Clifton did too, but it seems clear that there was an undeniable love triangle going on between Mike, Patty, and Stacy. And on top of that, the way Stacy had been attacked, it was just so personal. The mutilation, the hand-to-hand fight that had to have come before the first stab. Then there's the even more consuming thought that I could not purge from my mind. And that's this. Patty had a history of assaulting women on the Outer Banks in the 90s. And Patty and Mike had definitive ties to both Manio and towns up the beach. One of Patty's previous victims was from Kill Devil Hills. I couldn't help but think that the way Stacy was attacked is eerily similar to the way Denise Johnson was killed. As you all know, I'm still actively investigating Denise's unsolved murder. It's a case I'll never be able to fully walk away from. 
even as I investigate new cases. But I never imagined my reporting in season two would bring me full circle. Yet here I am, back where I started. And what's crazy is that as of 2020, now a year into my investigation into Stacy's death, I'm not the only person who thinks Denise and Stacy's murders could involve some of the same players. Had you ever heard Mike's name come up in Denise's case? I had to look back at some reports. Miss DeAmbre, I, I really don't have much of an answer for that. Next time on Counterclock. So what they need to do now is go interview the wife and get some kind of read on her. I'll lay out a connection between Denise Johnson and Stacey Stanton's cases that will blow your mind, just like it has mine. But I do recall her saying it was Mike, this guy named Mike who wants to date me, and I just said, well, Denise, you know, you don't have to date everybody that asks you out. Be sure to follow Counterclock on social media and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Counterclock is an Audio Chuck original show. Ashley Flowers is the executive producer, and all reporting and hosting is done by me, Delia D'Ambra. De